Many believe that artificial intelligence will become increasingly important in the field of dermatology. We all want to believe that AI has the potential to play an important role in teledermatology, in-person clinical examinations, and dermatopathology. But is the technology ready to be used in the clinical environment? To discuss the current capabilities and the challenges of AI to improve clinical dermatology, I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Roxana Donahue onto the Derm Derm Club podcast. Dr. Donahue is an MD, PhD from Stanford University, where she has done extensive research examining artificial intelligence's potential and current limitations on impacting dermatology. So, Dr. Donahue, I'm so happy to have you here today on our podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Hannah. And this is very exciting that you're doing this podcast series. Thank you. So we'll get started. I want to know, what is your opinion? Why is artificial intelligence going to be so important in dermatology? Well, I think, you know, when we think about technology, um, every period of time, there are new things that we discover and they can have an influence on our clinical practice. And artificial intelligence, which are techniques that try to enable computers to mimic human behavior has really taken off and permeates many aspects of our lives already, whether it be Netflix recommender systems or Amazon recommender systems, and sometimes even systems that you don't even realize are using AI to try to influence your behavior in some way. And I'm not saying that this is all positive. Some of it, of course, can be quite detrimental. Um, For example, algorithms used in social media that try to push forward, you know, things that you might respond to such such that if you respond well to misinformation, it might push more misinformation to you because it's trying to get you to engage. So, I mean, that's kind of the landscape of how it impacts our lives in general. Now let's talk about clinical. So there have been an explosion of techniques using something called deep learning, which works really well at learning about um, what different images might represent. And this has been used, you know, this has kind of been developed more in radiology where there are actually FDA approved uh, AI medical devices. There, as a, at the time of our recording together, there are no FDA approved dermatology AI devices, but dermatology is a very, very visual field. Um, And because these techniques are so good at being able to learn patterns in visual data, we can see that there is an opportunity here for us to build systems that could hopefully make our practice better, um, have better outcomes for patients, uh, increase access to care. Now to get there, it's going to take some work because there are definitely still many, many issues. I, I don't want to paint in a picture that is not, you know, reflective of the many things that we have to work through in order to get to that, that future. That's so interesting. So one of your recent papers examined some of the potential biases that exist in the databases and the algorithms that power artificial intelligence. Can you share with us those biases and how we are going to go about dealing with them? Yeah, so one thing I would say is that these algorithms, they're not magical, right? And so they really are based off of, um, they develop uh, based off of the data that they use to be, to 
to train, to train to discriminate between different uh, diseases. So, um, you know, you show them examples of what a melanoma looks like, what a benign nevus looks like, and the algorithm uh, identifies features to be able to tell, like be able to put an image on one bucket or another. And so um, the way I like to think about it when I describe it is to think about how we train our residents in dermatology. So if we train our residents in dermatology to only see pictures of a disease like psoriasis on white skin only, um, they may struggle when they see psoriasis on dark skin um, because if they've never encountered it before, they may not learn what the features are that would help them make that diagnosis. And so the algorithms are similar in that way that if you only give, if you, if you exclude a disease from what it's trained to be able to identify, it's not gonna be able to identify that disease. And depending on the kind of algorithm, um, it may actually try to force a label of some other disease that it's been trained on with low confidence. Um, as an aside, there are some algorithms that are trying to develop ways to say, basically, I don't know the way a human does, like this doesn't fit what I, my prior, you know, knowledge. But so to go back to your question of, of bias is sort of anything, any biases that exist in the data that you show it will translate into its behavior. And so um, the other issue that we like looked at is noisy labeling. For example, a lot of AI data sets have been labeled by dermatologists and maybe don't have biopsy results for at least the skin cancers. And we know when it comes to things like melanoma, depending on the paper you read, a dermatologist biopsies like seven lesions, eight lesions before they find one melanoma. And so um, you, if, you, if you don't have a biopsy labels on your images, you're actually, at least for the skin cancers, um, you're injecting noisiness also into the data and that noisiness is also going to get picked up by the algorithm. And so uh, these are sort of the different ways that we might en end up having bias uh, in, our, in our algorithms. Uh, so the data is very important. And in terms of what we can do, so uh, I think that improving databases to, that are used for AI to include a variety of diseases across diverse skin tones is really important. I think when we test these algorithms, we have to test them rigorously in many different settings to make sure that they're not having uh, poor performance across particular groups or in particular uh, settings. So I think these are some of the things, and I think that one thing that I would like to see more of is like a community of, um, that shares data together. Um, for example, the International Skin Imaging Collaboration was set up to help uh, basically collect images to be able to develop algorithms. And it's all de-identified data, there's a lot of data sharing involved in that between different groups. Um, and of course, we have to take into account issues, you know, issues like patient consent um, as well when we talk about data sharing. But, but I think these are like conversations we, we need to have so that we can build up, you know, databases that are representative of 
different diseases and across many different groups. Do you think that we will be able to train the AI to recognize diseases of different skin tones? I mean, it, it, there's no issue there the, except for the fact of the lack of data. So, I mean, I, I see no... I see no fundamental reason that different skin tones is going to be a problem, except that we need to have more data so that the algorithm has sees enough examples so that it can perform fairly across different skin tones. So what efforts are being done to collect that data? So we actually have been working on this. Um, and I think this is, this is sort of an recognize that this is a huge issue. Dr. Ade Adamson uh, foresaw this issue in a JAMA Derm piece he wrote about bias in AI because um, to this day, most of the public data sets uh, lack uh, dark skin tones in their data, um, but we've actually been working on a, a benchmark data set to release that is uh, includes diverse skin tones and that every image is uh, biopsy proven diagnosis. So it's a, like a, I don't want to say the word gold standard because it's kind of a loaded word, but it, we, we have a great confidence that the label noise is reduced because of the way that we went about labeling both the images for disease, but also um, the way of uh, labeling the skin tone. So there, right now there are some apps, as you know, out there that um, people can download on their phone and that you can take a picture of your skin and it analyzes it. What limitations do you think right now exist with these current apps? Yeah, so uh, I again should say none of these apps are FDA approved. Some of them have a CE mark in Europe, um, which the standard for that is much lower than FDA approval here in the US and actually um, hot off the press, there was a paper that literally just came out, um, uh, you know, in, in uh, the British Journal of Dermatology with the senior author, um, Dr. Veronica Rottenberg of Memorial Sloan Kettering. And uh, the paper is entitled, uh, Accuracy of Commercially Available Smartphone Applications for the Detection of Melanoma. So they focused in on melanoma and they, uh, tested whether several smartphone applications that can be bought on apps, they literally went onto app stores and downloaded applications. And they looked at whether, and, and they had images of biopsy, 15 biopsy proven melanomas, 15 biopsy proven nevi. And they tested these uh, across several different applications. And the performance was pretty dismal. Um, average sensitivity for melanoma was 0.28 and specificity was 0.81. So uh, not good. I think that I worry about any application that's being released directly to the public that hasn't undergone regulatory approval, especially if they're um, making claims about being able to uh, make a diagnosis. So we've spoken a lot about how Right now, the current apps that are out there, they don't have FDA approval. What standards need to be put in place? Um, do you foresee that these AI-powered tools will have been, like, will have been overseen by the FDA, or is there technology moving faster than the approval process? 
Yeah, so um, actually technically AI medical devices do have to get FDA approval. And we actually wrote a, a paper sort of analyzing prior FDA approvals of AI medical devices uh, that was published uh, in Nature Medicine. And we found that many of the many of the uh, studies in uh, these are all in other domains of medicine. You know, they used retrospective data. They may have used they used probably single site. And I think, you know, there's this sort of push in medicine where with these algorithms, we would really like to see randomized control studies in order to show that they work and they are not harming patients. And of course, I, I also think that there's a difference between the consumer-based algorithms and algorithms that are decision support for physicians, because there's a physician in the loop who's the final decider. And of course, you want those algorithms to work well and not to push people towards bad decision-making as physicians. But um, I just have concern when, when we have these direct-to-consumer applications that are not approved, that don't have sort of the sensitivity and specificity that we hope, that may be restricted in their parameters. Um, we don't know much about how diverse the data is that they trained on. The study that I mentioned um, did not, uh, where, where they tested the apps, didn't actually in include uh, diverse skin. So that performance is probably even worse when you um, do it across mm. diverse skin tones. So uh, I think I think definitely what we need are trials that test the algorithms in the intended use setting, meaning that uh, if it's something that's intended for consumers, do a trial with consumers and watch what the outcomes are and, and track, you know, making sure that it doesn't reassure patients too much when they have a melanoma, obviously, and have standard of care available to those patients as well. Um, but, and I think if it's something that is meant to be used by a physician, we want to see like how that physician's diagnosing behavior changes. Does it actually change it at all? Um, I, I imagine that it, there might be cases where certain algorithms actually do better in the primary care setting and maybe don't help specialists like dermatologists as much. Um, there may be algorithms that do help dermatologists because they're very good at catching sort of ambiguous cases or edge cases. So I think, I think there's definitely still a lot of research that needs to be done. I think there are definitely people who um, are trying to do the kinds of trial work needed to prove that their device does what it, they claim it does. Are there um, a standard number of images that need to be, that the AI needs to be trained with um, to go into that algorithm? Like, you know, melanoma, as you said, or really psoriasis, any uh, dermatologic disease can present differently in different people with different skin tones, even on same skin tones, it can present differently. So to train the AI, like how many images do, do you have to show it so that it can recognize, oh, this is a, this is atopic dermatitis, or this is an atypical melanoma, but it also could look like this. I mean, I think that's a, 
slightly complicated question like there are rules of thumb based on how many classes by classes I mean like how many different diseases you are trying to um, train on what kind of architecture you're using um, so there's like rules of thumb but then you have to also account for sort of what what the variation might be and so you if you want to represent all skin tones you may need more images um, there are also techniques where you can take algorithms that may have been trained on some one set of images and um, fine tune them further to be able to perform well on a new image data set. So, so there's not like a, like, they're not going to be like a number, like you need X number of image. It's like a kind of a dependent on the problem that you're addressing um, and what all the different variables are um, that you're trying to account for when solving that problem. Okay, and it seems like there's varying degrees of accuracy and how precise the algorithms are at this point. And I'm sure over time, they're only going to improve. At what point do you think we will be able to fully rely on, on AI more than the human eye? I think that's a tough question because um, I think we have to basically have studies that show that we could do that. The problem is that these algorithms can be very sensitive to variation that um, the human eye may not even detect. So for example, algorithms that have been trained purely on iPhone photographs and tested on iPhone photographs when tested on Android-based uh, images have you know, a slight drop-off in performance. Um, things like lighting conditions, you know, there's all sorts of like variables that can make a difference. I think that it could be that if we have more standardized imaging, then maybe things can get a little bit more reliable. Um, I think the issue with dermatology data is like we don't have standardized imaging like some uh, other domains do like radiology and even in radiology, they've noticed that small variations in their technology can influence algorithm performance. So um, I think like we actually have a lot more variability because of that because we don't, you know, we don't have a standardized way that we take photos in clinic. We don't have standardized cameras that we use. We don't have standardized lighting. We don't, you know, we take images of different body parts at different angles and all, all of these things, um, all of these things kind of affect the variability that goes in. I personally think we are still some ways off but before needing to use uh, like autonomous systems in dermatology. There may be that there are other more modalities other than skin images that are more standardized, like, you know, for example, confocal microscopy, or if you could take more like standardized dermoscopy images that might be more amenable this kind of thing. But I mean, we're, we're kind of like, ooh, we're kind of discussing in sort of the more theoretical realm. I, I also think that we would benefit more from working on building systems that as the AAD task force uh, led by Dr. Justin Coe has said, is like things that will augment our abilities rather head to head, just because the other thing that hasn't been fully developed yet is monitoring systems. So as I mentioned, these algorithms may encounter what we call domain shifts that humans may not even register. And so, for example, 
You don't want to get into a situation where uh, everybody upgrades their phones and it actually turns out that when that happens, the algorithm performance drops off and we don't have any sort of tools monitoring performance over time to like alert us to the that you know drop off so i think i i I view the world as sort of like human plus algorithm uh rather than algorithm alone it's interesting because i took a course on dermoscopy at sloan kettering probably two three years ago at this point and they were talking about the ai and and that we really need to almost have like a standardized camera that clinics are sent so that we can make sure that all the images are standardized and that we can say, okay, the, maybe the lighting won't be consistent, but at least the quality of the, the photo will be. Do you think that AI will remove the function of, the derm, of a dermatologist in the future or does it simply serve as an enhancement tool for the physician? Um, I think it's an enhancement tool. I mean, first of all, we're not even to the point where AI can reliably be making diagnoses. And I think um, it's not, I think because of the inconsistency of the data and all the variables in the data, that's still some time away. I mean, sure, one could conceive that you, if you amass like a large enough data set that you know, covers all the many different, you know, situations, and then you train an algorithm on that data set for a really long time. And then you, you know, test it out. And it's like super, um, not only accurate, but has good sensitivity and specificity. Something like that could be useful. And it's not that it's like inconceivable. I just, the way that I see the field going right now is probably something more where we use algorithms to augment our decision making. We identify areas where our decision making could use additional support. We identify domains where things could be better. Like, so one thing that we've worked on is using AI to give patients feedback on their quality of photo before they send it in for the telehealth visit, right? So that we get less blurry or less darkly lit photos. Like that's an area where, okay, it's not making a diagnosis, but it's actually streamlining something that is incredibly important um, because we found at least in our data that about 40% of the images patients were sending in were not, you know, of the best, of the best quality to try to make a diagnosis. And so um, trying to save time there by helping patients take better photos for uh, our diagnosis. So I, like, I don't really worry about that at all. Um, and of course, obviously a dermatologist does more than a lot of these systems are looking at images only. There's some algorithms that are now trying to incorporate clinical history mm. into it, but that's still, I mean, pretty early as well. And we, we as dermatologists uh, take in a lot of information. We take in clinical history, we take in images, we then perform diagnostic tests, we made order labs, we, you know, counsel the patient on what to do, we do biopsies, we do excisions, like it's, it's not, uh, it's not something that can easily, uh, this like a very diverse skill set of the different things that we do is just like not easily automated uh, across the board. Um, but I think, you know, we all agree that there are a lot of inefficiencies in our practices that could be enhanced um, with tools.
that we build using AI. Has the remote error accelerated um, our investment in AI? I mean, I think there was a lot of investment even before. I think the remote era, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think, I mean, it's certainly brought to light more applications as more people are using telehealth. They're realizing there's all sorts of problems that we need to address, like around image quality, around triage, around like, you know, uh, being able to provide people maybe even with things at home that they could do to help examine the lesion better. And I think there's like all sorts of different technologies that may emerge from the remote era, even outside. I mean, some of them may use AI. So like, you know, there's a lot of discussion of like, are there things other than cameras that we can use to gather more information about a lesion, you know, different kinds of sensors um, and tape stripping, just like different kinds of modes of collecting more data when the patient is not actually in front of you and you are not able to like easily access and do a biopsy and you're trying to make decisions about who to bring in. And the thing is, is that some of these technologies may then uh, depend on AI systems to process that data and to give it output. Some of them may not, but like that's just one way that teledermatology might accelerate uh, this process. Where do you foresee the future of using AI in the next five, 10, 15 years? I mean, it's very hard, I think, to make these projections because, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that could go differently. I mean, I think that there are several companies that are working on doing trials to show that they, that their tools could help, for example, primary care doctors um, with decision-making about whether or not to refer to the dermatologist. And, you know, for example, help like reassure them when lesions are benign, of course, their own clinical decision-making is the final decider or like raise the flag on lesions they may not have realized should be referred to the dermatologist. Um, so I think there's like a lot of interest in that space of like, uh, helping non-specialists because, you know, there's a very long wait time to see dermatologists, usually most places is several months. And we want to make sure that patients who do have skin cancer can get in as, you know, or, or severe disease of any kind can get in as quickly as, as possible. Um, so I think that there's a lot of people working on basically technologies that will enhance our capabilities. And that's, I mean, that's what I would ideally like to see is like algorithms that help us get patients to take better telederm pictures, which may help us triage and fast track patients, you know, uh, who have large tumors um, get scheduled faster or might help triage like derm path slides to, you know, depending on how, you know, risky how much risk there is for the diagnosis by looking at the image of the slides. There's a lot of different domains that this could play out in. Um, what I don't see in the next five to 10 years is any kind of autonomous system. It's just not, the technology is not to that point um, in terms of, you know, having the appropriate data to be able to pull something like that off. Well, I'm hopeful for the future, and I really thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Derm Club podcast. 
If you found the discussion today to be valuable, please subscribe and share. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode as we continue to delve into dermatology and skincare with the world experts.